we are working our way through Romans, and uh, we've come to the crucial section, I think. Uh, as you know, maybe you don't know, uh, years ago, I, I, my research was centered on Romans 6, 7, and 8. And um, the Romans 7 is particularly interesting because there are a group of uh, people that uh, have, they're, they're not Christians, in fact, they're atheists, they're Marxists, but they're philosophers, they're psychoanalysts, and they've taken up reading and uh, examining the Apostle Paul, and particular Rome, particularly Romans 7, because what they found in Romans 7 is an accurate description, then, of the human condition uh, as they understand it. That is, they're saying, well, yeah, we don't believe all the, you know, the resurrection and the divinity and Jesus, but nonetheless, in, especially from Romans 7, 7, uh, to the end of the chapter, here is a description of the parameters of what the universal human problem is. It's interesting that this has happened because many Christians who read Romans 7, 7 actually read this as if it is a picture of a Christian and not the picture of the problem. And of course, my understanding is, well, this is not about the normal Christian life. This is about uh, what it's like to be outside of Christ and in fact identifying, whether you're Jew or Gentile, what the primary problem is. So, you know, the big issue in Romans 7 is who is the I, that he uses the word I throughout here. And... Um, I think it's easy to identify that he's not talking about a Christian. In 7.18 he says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no the evil I do, no, do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul's saying, I think he's reflecting back on his life before he was a Christian, now that he is a Christian, and saying uh, that this was the struggle in his life, that he wanted to do good, but he couldn't do it. He's not describing the Christian life, because in chapter 8 he's going to go on and describe, in fact, that as Christians we can uh, follow Christ, that we can uh, walk as he walked, that we can put on righteousness. Um. He says in 7.14, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Does that sound like a Christian? Or does that somebody sound like somebody prior to becoming a Christian? In 7.17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. He's describing uh, his whole life as if it's controlled, it's out of control, and sin is the controlling factor. Uh, in 21, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. He's not saying that as a Jew, he didn't apprehend or comprehend the law. 
But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And then, of course, I think the, the thing that seals it, that he's not talking about uh, a normal Christian life, is verse 24. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he has the answer. Jesus Christ has rescued us. And then he goes in, you know, the next section is about what this rescue looks like. So here's the problem, Paul says. Here is what it looks like not to be a Christian. And then he depicts in chapter 8 what the rescue uh, consists of. So I think that we need to be very clear. And I'm not saying, you know, when we read chapter 7 that we don't say, yeah, that sounds like me sometimes. Uh, I think we can all relate, but the point is that that is not really who we are. That's not really who we're to be in Christ. And so if we have this ideal before us, I think that we may fall back occasionally into this kind of struggle that Paul's describing, but that is not definitive of who we are as Christians. When we get to 8.1, Paul says, uh, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I think he's contrasting two things here. He says, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. What's the law of sin and death? No mystery. He's just described it. He said, here's what the law of sin and death looks like. It's this struggle in which we try to keep the law. We imagine there's life in the law. And I don't think he just means the Jewish law. I think he just means the whether it's the law written on the heart or it's the law that of you know, whatever law we're familiar with, the law of conscience, that we imagine that there is life to be found in that, and that's the lie, that's the deception of sin. And so what I would say in chapter 7, we have one kind of human subject. He's already talked about this in chapter 5. Paul says there's basically two kinds of human beings. There's first Adam human beings, and there's second Adam human beings. And so I think in 7.7, 7, he's describing what that first Adam looks like. And in chapter 8, he's describing what the second Adam human being looks like. And of course, the difference is the, the, in the word condemnation. He's saying in chapter 8, there is no condemnation. With the word condemnation, I think we can conjure up ideas of future condemnation. But no, he, say, he says, therefore, there is no, he's referring back to this picture of a kind of life that is a damnable sort of existence. We're controlled by covetous desire, as he says in 7.7. Um, this is the picture in chapter 7, 7, of the fall of man all over again. But we all go through a kind of fall. We all, you know, as in Genesis 3, 5, their eyes, Eve's eyes were open. Was that a good thing when her eyes were open? No, that was a bad thing. 
because her eyes opened as her ears closed in regard to the word of God. In other words, her seeing the fruit was good. It was you know, good for eating, good for gaining uh, wisdom and knowledge. That, that became the basis of her ethical understanding, her understanding of who she is or who they were. And so John will refer to the same event in all of our lives as lust of the eyes and pride of life. That is that we are uh, centered upon uh, a kind of immediate desire, which we would pull in throughout this as relating to seeing the word, the Greek word there is blepo. In, in 7.9, he says, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. What commandment? Well, I think he's talking about uh, a universal thing. It happened with Adam and Eve, but it happens with all of us. Paul, Adam and Eve, uh, we all encounter this law. And in some way, it's the law uh, of, you know, as soon as we encounter it, that by its very nature, we've found ourselves uh, in transgression. And he says, uh, I died. You know, I encountered the law, I died. That was the thing that God had said to Adam and Eve. The day you eat of it, you'll die. Did they die? Well, again, we need to redefine death. Death isn't just, oh, when your body, uh, you know, uh, stops breathing and your heart stops beating. Uh, did Paul die the day he sinned? No, that's, he, he didn't die physically, but he died in the sense that Adam and Eve died. Uh, they were separated from God. They were separated from one another. They were separated from creation. And Paul's saying they're even split within themselves. There is this self-alienation and this alienation. You know, what is death? Well, death is alienation. It's separation, separation from God and separation from one another and separation even within yourself. And what that evokes in Adam and Eve, of course, is total shame. They try to hide. They try to cover up. Uh, shame is a, a, the, you know, the worst, I think, human emotion. I think it is the root negative emotion that sends us into pride. You know, why would people cover up and not just put on clothes, but why would we cover up and pretend to be, you know, put on a project, a, a kind of image of ourselves uh, that's not true. You know, I'm, in, I'm an important guy. I've got, you know, and so we try to establish our own identity. We try to establish our own being. And that's our struggle, right? Isn't that the human condition? Everybody like Frank Sinatra, you know, uh, did it their way. They want to be somebody. They want to find life on their own. Well, that's the, that's the fall of man. We can't find life. We can't be somebody on our own. And so that's the, the Paul begins Romans with that idea in mind. That here is shame is the controlling factor in people's lives. Pride and shame 
describe the axis that we all live on. And Paul begins the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel. What he means there is that here is the resolution. Here is uh, the resolution to the problem of sin. And so shame throughout the Psalms and you know, the, especially the lament Psalms in the Old Testament are always paired together with the terminology of righteousness. What's the resolution to the ultimate problem of shame and death and pride? Well, it's righteousness, not a theoretical righteousness up in the sky somewhere. No, you made right. You are brought together into relationship with God. You're brought into relationship with one another, brought back into relationship. I think, Larry, that's why it's very appropriate that in church, we discuss GMOs and, you know, what is our proper relationship to the earth? Uh, what it, because all of that then is describing reconciliation. We've been made right. We've been reconciled. We can have good relations with other people. That's not just secondary. That's primary because who we are then is redefined. And that's the difference, the big difference you see between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 7, you've got I, you know, an individual, an absolute individual. There is no I in chapter 8. Uh, there is this corporate identity in Christ. That Suddenly, uh, the I, in Paul's words from Galatians, the I has been crucified. So the problem of death, the problem of pride, the problem of shame creates this kind of person, I believe, that Paul is describing in chapter 7. Um, you know, that somebody that's uh, subject to uh, shame and subject to, in, in the final book of the Bible, uh, subject to uh, being thrown out naked and ashamed. Paul uh, is really reflecting here, I think, on the experience of Adam and Eve. Prior to the fall, it says they were naked but not ashamed, and then they are naked and ashamed. I don't know if you realize, and probably we don't want to reinstitute it in the church, but the, originally in the church, everybody was baptized naked. The idea is we'll shed all pretense, all pretense of pride, and we're going to be clothed in Christ. And so that entire imagery uh, was captured then in the picture of now we can be naked but not ashamed. I don't take that literally. I'm not a nudist. Uh, but I do think that we have solved the problem of, of shame. So... Paul says in 3, uh, 11, sin deceived me, sin tricked me. And of course, sin in the old, in, in Genesis was the serpent, that ancient, you know, serpent, the devil, works by way of deception. Has he only tricked Adam and Eve? No, the picture is that all people eventually are deceived by sin. Um, and the deception is that you won't, be subject to death. You won't die 
Satan says. You won't be ashamed because you have life on your own. You can clothe yourself. You can feed yourself. You can establish yourself. You can be somebody on your own. You can know good and evil. You can be like God. That's a lie. That's not true. Uh, that's a description of the human being as if they're God, as if they're innately immortal. And so the picture is if you embrace this lie that uh, you will not die, you die. And Jesus reverses this. He says that anyone who says who would attempt to save his life will lose it. That is, our attempts at self-salvation, our attempts to gain life, to grab all the gusto you can, Budweiser, the king of beers. Uh, there was an old commercial. I don't know if that's still on. But the, the picture is that in and through grabbing you know, life, we can obtain life. And I think that's not a, a true picture. Isaiah pictures that as the covenant with death. The the picture is that we've all entered into a covenant with death, with the grave. We've entered into an agreement that the scourge of death will pass by, but in some way it won't touch me. And so human religion, I believe, is based upon death denial. Uh, Buddhism, you, know, you just go through all the religions. What are they saying about death? They're saying it's not real. That when you die, that's good because you spring out of this body, which is pictured as a prison house, and you go to paradise. That's not Christianity, that's paganism. And very often we've confused paganism with what the Bible is saying. Death is the last enemy. Death has been defeated in Christ. Death is a reality. And so we don't have to fear death, we don't have to flee from death, but we can face it for what it is. It's a reality. We're, it's, it's coming, you know, and we, some of us, it's coming sooner than others, you know. Not to put too fine a point on that, but we're all getting older, right? And, and of course, that's the thing when you go to a funeral and you have the experience of having lost a loved one. As a Christian, we can say, I believe in resurrection. I believe that there will be new life. We don't deny the reality, the terrible pain of death. We can rejoice, as Paul will put it, in that suffering because we recognize that there is new life. There's resurrection life. So uh, the picture in you know, Romans 7 is, as Paul reflects back on it, that people are hostile. He actually says this in 8. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Why? Because what it would do with the law is attempt to gain life through the law. It would attempt, you know, and the, the issue here, did anybody ever believe that by the law, there is life. I mean, you have to think about this. The answer is no. No, there was never life in the law. Uh, the law was simply 
a marker then and is a marker of sin. So that's the reason Paul can say, there's no condemnation. The law of sin and death has been replaced by the law of life in the spirit. You know, don't get religious on me here. Think practically that we can live differently. We can begin to, to really live this out. Uh, I meant religious there in a bad sense. Sometimes I think we can, in our uh, kind of vocabulary, religious vocabulary, miss the point. Paul is talking about a practical difference in the way that we can think of ourselves and other people in life. The way that he describes this in chapter 8, he says that Christ has become a sin offering for us. The sin offering was a very particular Jewish sacrifice. It was not just a general, an offering for general wrongdoing, but the sin offering was for the unwilling sin or the unconscious sin or deception. And so I believe that what Paul is saying, Christ has resolved through his life and death, specifically the problem that he's described in chapter seven. We have a problem in our very subjectivity. We have a problem in our personhood. We have a problem in our minds. You have a problem in your head. You have a problem in the way you think. You got a neurosis. You got a, you know, how do you, how do you want to describe it? You need help. Uh, and very often I'm afraid that in a kind of, we, we take the death of Christ and we apply it in a kind of vague, abstract way so that it doesn't address the real world problems that we have. Chapter seven describes, oh, this is a, this, this is a problem person who struggles with evil and struggles with himself. Christ has resolved that problem. So Paul cries out at the end of chapter seven, who will rescue me from this body of death? Um, who will rescue me from this eye? who does evil, who does not know what he does and does not will what he does, who will rescue me from this agonistic struggle, who will rescue me from this picture of God simply as lawgiver, Christ Jesus. And that's the point is everything that he said here is undone in chapter eight. Uh, the disobedience unto death and the orientation founded in that disobedience, in that deception, in which you cannot obey God, Paul says, because your mind is hostile to God, is now empowered, is now enabled to live a resurrection life. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So he's saying you, you, resurrection's coming, but you can begin to enjoy that resurrection life now. So we've moved, you know, if you think of chapter seven, you move from life to death, and chapter eight, you move from death to life, that you're reborn, you're uh, reoriented, your sin's deception uh, no longer has a hold upon you. He's already described this. We talked in chapter six that we've been baptized into the death of Christ. We've already dealt with the problem of death and we will be raised with him. So he who would lose his life for my sake in the gospels shall find it. That describes 
the beginning of the Christian life. So we are co-participants in his death. We are co-participants in his resurrection. Paul says, I've been crucified with him. I've been crucified with Christ. I, he's using the same word, and the, the Greek word here is literally the word ego. Ego no longer lives. Uh, ego has been crucified with Christ. And I don't, don't get the wrong image here. I think he means one kind of subject has died and been crucified and bis, been displaced by another subject. And so the difference between that Christ can make is the difference between Romans 7 and 8. I is no longer the controlling factor. Uh, the corporate we, the corporate body of Christ has displaced the I, a plurality of persons. What does that mean in your real life? That means that you can enjoy other people. You can enjoy uh, your husband and wife and your children and, and your friends, and you can have a real fellowship with people. Uh, there's no Holy Spirit in chapter 7. Chapter 8, the Holy Spirit appears just as many times in chapter 8 as the I does in chapter 7. So if I is the controlling factor in the non-Christian life, the Holy Spirit becomes the controlling factor in the Christian life. Some 19 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And of course, the difference is described as the law of life in the Spirit. Here, Paul is saying, here's what life in the spirit looks like over and against the law of sin and death. Now, it might mean, mean a, a, seem to be a minor thing, but I think it's actually a big thing. There's no prayer in chapter 7. There's no depth of communion with God. And yet, Paul describes prayer in chapter 8 in a very profound way. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Is there an unconscious self in chapter 7? Oh yeah, but that unconscious self is in some way given over to death. Is there an unconscious self in chapter 8? Oh, the, the Holy Spirit is working in us in such a way that we cannot even articulate. So the life of prayer is a life of communion with God, a life of uh, deep uh, communion in which he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Maybe the big difference between 7 and 8 is that all of 7 is grounded in visual imagery. The word there is blepo in the Greek. And in chapter 8, the image of the sun is mentioned in 829 uh, that we'll be conformed to the image of the sun. How do you know what the image of Jesus Christ is? What image are we, you know, does everybody need to grow a beard and look like a kind of California hippie? <laughs> Uh, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's not the kind of image, imagery we're talking about, right? The image of Christ is one that comes to us in and through the word of God. So it's no longer an image that is based upon a visual image, but it's an image that's based on the auditory. 
So if the fall of man was a fall into vision, into seeing as the basis, the reconciliation, salvation is a, a recovering of being guided and defined by the word of God. So we achieve the likeness of the son as we conform by, to the image of his word. The difference between, there's actually, I think, a very different picture of God in chapter 7 and 8. God is pictured as lawgiver. The deception of sin in some way has perverted our understanding of who God is in chapter 7. But in chapter 8, in uh, verse 15 to 17, Paul cries out. He talks about God as, by him we cry, Abba, Father. You know, this is a, a, a colloquialism for God as our Papa as our dad, or as our, in other words, it's a very intimate word here. Whereas in chapter seven, there really is no relationship to God. There's only relationship to the law. And we imagine that our relationship to the law is our relationship to God. Is that true or is that a lie? That's the lie. That's the lie of sin. But in chapter eight, we can have through Christ a direct relationship a father-child-like relationship uh, with God. So who will rescue me from this body of death? Thank God there is a rescue in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation. We've moved from death to life. We've been raised again. There is no longer this agonistic struggle, Paul says in verse 6. There is now life and peace. In chapter 7, no love, right? The word love never comes up. Chapter 8, we have no fear. Uh, we do not receive a spirit that makes us a slave to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We are God's children. We've entered into a love relationship, and I believe that's what he's describing. In chapter 7, people are incapable of obedience. They can't do the right. Chapter 8, verse 4, we walk uh, according to righteousness uh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to, you know, is it a theoretical righteousness? No, we actually live this out. Uh, we live according to the Mind set on the things of the Spirit, Paul says. And so there's active submission to God in this new life. Maybe you could characterize the, the key difference in the difference between a life shaped in chapter 7 by desire. Covetous desire is the controlling factor in the fall of man, but it's the controlling factor in Paul's picture of the sinful man. What displaces desire in our life as Christians? I believe that the, the counterbalance to desire in chapter 8 is Christian hope. For in this hope we were saved. What's the difference between hope and desire? Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Desire is based upon the seeing, the visual, the immediate gratification, grabbing all the gusto you can. Hope is an idea of basing our, you know, uh, what we look for 
And we're using a metaphor here because we can't see it, but it's future. Our life is guided by a realization of a future hope that we begin to live out now. So, you know, here's the move from the mind's eye, which is the picture throughout history, uh, in which the, you know, blepo or seeing the self is primary. Hope is focused on the prospect in 829 of conformity to the unseen image of Christ, that we will be as he is. He has been as we are, so shall we be as he is. So his image is not an object of sight, but it's an object, uh, or he is the picture of hope for us. And then, you know, the difference between the suffering of seven, we're going to suffer as human beings in one way or another, but suffering can either be the main thing about you or suffering can be put in its place. I believe the suffering of chapter seven will kill you. Uh, people given over to this suffering, I believe are those who are given completely over to suffering and death. And that's the great tragedy of chapter seven is if you imagine that this is definitive of human life, and the people that I begin with, you know, that are reading this, this is, they're really saying this is what human life is. Oh, it's all suffering. It's all about death. And they said, yeah, yeah, that's right. They're nihilists. It's a dark, it's a bleak picture. Paul still talks about suffering, but he says, I consider that our present sufferings in chapter, verse 18 are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The suffering is no longer the controlling factor about us, uh, but rather the hope of glory has become the controlling factor. Hope is very different than desire. Hope embraces the change and, uh, you know, uh, of history and time. Hope direct, directly counters the lie or futility. Paul actually uses in verse 20, now, if I do not uh, want to do it, or rather, I'm sorry, the wrong verse. Um, in, for the creation was subjected to futility, to frustration. Uh, the word there is the same or the same root word as the word lie in uh, chapter 7. So the futility of the lie is overcome. The hopeless futility has now been replaced by a hopeful hope in the glory of future glory. So the whole world is groaning as in childbirth, awaiting the appearance of the sons of God. But like childbirth, hope looks forward to uh, uh, something greater. The suffering of childbirth can be, you know, that's not the main thing that's happening in childbirth. You get a child at the end of it. Uh, now, there may be more suffering involved there, but uh, at least it's not defined by the suffering. So the Christian life, and this is the conclusion, is not defined by struggle. It's not defined by this agonistic struggle of chapter 7, doing what I do not want. Uh, and incapable of doing the good, a life in which sin has colonized the body. We're no longer living under the law of sin and death. 
and the deception this entails. But we're living in a period of no condemnation, in the period in which we have the law of life in the Spirit. Let's sing our hymn of invitation. <clears throat>